Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your Sufyan and Buddha Judge tweeter and A People's Theology host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Lynn Marie Tonstad. Lynn is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School. She is also the author of God Indifference and Queer Theology. Also musically featured throughout this episode is JAS Quintet. JAS Quintet is a jazz group from South Dakota. You can get connected with both Lynn and JAS Quintet and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Lynn Marie Tonstad, and Lynn Marie, uh, you are the Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School, uh, pretty important divinity school, might I add, uh, and you do lots of wonderful work in the world. Uh, you clearly are a cat owner, it seems like, as well, so you're probably lots of things in the world, but who is Dr. Lynn Marie Tonstad to Dr. Lynn Marie Tonstad? Oh, wow. Um, well, I have the sort of academic version of that, which is the, I do constructive theology that sort of thinks about reinterpreting the history of Christian thought in mm-hmm. relation to the sort of needs and um, questions of today. And that uh, I specialize especially in uh, thinking about gender and sexuality in that regard. But I've also done work on, you know, like I like to say when I'm trying to shut things down at parties, I say, I wrote a book on God. <laughs> and that shut things, shuts things down at parties. So That'll do that's it. Another thing that I like to do is shut things down at parties. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from Norway originally, uh, but you can't tell from. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I don't hear a, a no. Norwegian accent at all. I, uh, I, I grew up bilingual, but I used to have more of an accent. And uh, when I'd been in cal- college in California for two years, I heard myself greet a friend as he was coming across campus by saying, yo, dude, what's up? And I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, I do not sound like I used to <laughs> Yeah, uh, the, the Californian accent is, you know, that, that surfer accent is it's kind of its own thing, though. It is, and I, I still have the likes in there occasionally. I'm quite outgrown them, even though I've been on the East Coast for many, many years now. That's great. Well, uh, as somebody who lives in a pretty Scandinavian place, I, I appreciate you, Norwegian, so I can't, I can't complain. Well, the one thing that is relevant about that is that by U.S. American standards, I am a, an outstanding cross-country skier. Oh, I'm By sure. Norwegian standards, I'm a little bit slow and pathetic, you know. <laughs> but by U.S. American standards, I'm just like, yeah, you far. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of other things that you are probably vastly superior uh, versus the average American. Definitely. So, uh, 
with that said, one of those things you're probably <laughs> vastly superior on is writing books. And you wrote a book called called Queer Theology. What a wonderful book, delightful book. What was something that you learned theologically or maybe even factually uh, that you that you learned about as you wrote the book that you may have not known prior to writing it? Well, one of the exciting things about writing the book was that it ends in this sort of inconclusive manner. That it ends on a question, right? Mm, mm-hmm. um, but but the section that just precedes that is a little bit of an introduction to some really exciting work that's going on in thinking about Christianity, theology, and sexuality right mm-hmm. now. And so the chance to engage in more depth with some of those projects was really my talk. Um, and uh, one of them being the possibility of a sort of what Sean Crawley calls an atheological approach to mm-hmm, the book mm-hmm. Breath that I write about in mm-hmm. that chapter. So uh, a-, a Sean is actually a previous guest on this podcast. Oh, well. nice. Excellent. Well, he was a colleague at YDS for a year as well. So that was a fun time and uh, which happened right after I'd finished the book. So that's great. Uh, what's something maybe you learned about yourself as you wrote the book? So not, maybe not necessarily something factually or theologically, but maybe about your own personal uh, self. Well, the hardest part was actually where the book ends and the way that it ends on a question uh, about life lived in the shadow of death. You know, the question of, of, of resurrection or what sort of life beyond or past death means is a really hard one for people with Christian commitments. Mm-hmm. And until I was finishing the book, I think I had anticipated that I would be able to say something a little more definitive at the end. And but I try to keep my theological writing really, really honest. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't ever want to get it fall into the trap of writing something that, you know, I know I get things wrong, of course. There are things that I, you know, you'd always like to go back and change that one right. sentence that just or you know, the time when you, you know, screwed something up. But that, but I try to keep my writing really, really honest and really closely tied to 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 life and to thinking and to the sort of totality within which the writing uh, takes place and from which it, you know, usually rather agonizingly comes. Yeah. And, and the fact that I sort of had to end the book where, where I do, um, I had not anticipated. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd be able to say a bit more in one direction or another, uh, and I, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for many LGBTQ folks, uh, there tends to be a very complex spiritual journey for them. Uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe your own religious and spiritual journey? Uh, kind of how, how did that all play out and, and how did you get to where you are now as an LGBTQ person? It's a, it's a great question. And, and mine was a little, um, probably a little bit unusual in some ways. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, so with some uh, some similarities to evangelicalism, or maybe what even what we used to call fundamentalism, mm-hmm. um, but but also with a lot of differences and with very self-conscious differences from that. And I was uh, I was very interested in in religious questions uh, from early on, uh, but I had the standard, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of approach <laughs> question to sexuality and. Yeah. And my mind changed on that when I was about 14 or 15 in a very dramatic way uh, before I was thinking in in personal terms at all. And after my mind changed, there's never been anything that has made me question that change of mind. Mm. Um, And what that meant was that even when I was an undergrad at a 7th Adventist school in Southern California, 
where I was at one point, I was the only woman on campus who was out in college. Um, and, and you know, you, you weren't allowed to have an open LGBTQ group, but you could have, here's the trick, right? You could have a support group mm. for people who were struggling yeah. that was run by the counseling center. And actually it, it was a lovely group that was genuinely very supportive. Um, but, but that was the sort of, that was the only way that they could have anything open um, to serve uh, queer people on campus. And, uh, but, but because I knew that they were wrong about sexuality, I knew that, right? Like the, 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 it, it, it has never been a serious question for me since then. Mm. Um, and at, not in the sense that I don't understand why people seriously struggle. Of course, I understand that. Um, my, own, my own family has a history of that kind and it's very, very painful. But if you know that homophobia is wrong, if you really deeply know that on the level that you know that other kinds of wrongs are wrong, like things where, where you just, you wouldn't even ask yourself, hey, is this a reasonable thing to do? Like, you know, I don't know, destroy the world with climate change. Like, you know, that's wrong, mm -hmm. right? So you don't ask yourself a question, is climate change okay? So for me, because I knew the sorts of debates around sexuality have, have been a little unsatisfying to me. and. Um, when I became a theologian, I was initially working primarily on the, you know, questions of God, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the heart of theology. Um, but as time went on, I became more and more concerned that I wanted to write something that was available and, and would do less of the, hey, here's a way I can make the case for that it's okay to be gay on very conservative terms or something like that. That case has been made, it's been made well, it's mm -hmm. been made if that's the way you want your case to be made. It's also, to my mind, not theologically interesting. Mm. If you want a religion that's going to orient your entire life, as Christianity claims to do, thinking that at the heart of that message should be something about when sexual contact between adults is licit, that that should sort of stand at the center, churches should split over it, people should have their families broken apart because of that, then, you know, I don't think you should be orienting your life by this religion. If that's the sort of thing you think you want to build the stability and life isn't stable it's, it's actually the opposite of that in all right. ways. but if you want to build if you want to sort of take a bet on that that's just incredibly sad to me One of the things that I really appreciate about your book is just that is you're trying to orient re or actually rather reorient the conversation around queer theology uh, away from being it uh, apologetic, where you're trying to defend being queer and being Christian or being a theological LGBTQ person. Uh, what you're hoping to do is really move beyond that. What does queer theology look beyond or how does it look beyond being simply apologetic? Well, one of the things that it has in common with what theology should be at its best is that it should be about world transformation. Mm. It should be about 
what the possibilities and unfortunately in some ways also limitations are of radically transforming some of the conditions of human existence. It should be about what human sociality can be at its best and that includes the socioeconomic and political structures that organize so much of life in common. It should be about what it costs and takes to maintain a commitment to living really differently. In that sense, right, queer theology is one way of doing just theology, right? Right. right. In, in conversation with some kinds of questions and kinds of resources that, you know, don't necessarily come out in the same place as Christianity typically or often does, but where there's also a history of thinking um, out of the position of not fitting into the world in certain ways as it is. And we all know that as acceptance on questions of sexuality has been changing, um, there's, there's much that's gained with that. Mm. There's also, um, maybe as in the history of Christianity, there's also something you lose if you fit in too easily, if it's too easy for you to be in the world. And I don't mean that one should invest in the American dream of persecution, right? That sort of American dream, like somebody somewhere has got to be persecuting me because that right. means I'm doing something right. I'm not talking about that at all, but I'm talking about how difficult, but also, um, you know, uh, giving or, or sort of abundant it is to live at odds in, in a variety of ways with, with um, and again, saying the world like this is always a bit ambiguous because it can be condemnatory or it can be something about, you know, sort of normality. But what I, what I, what interests me about both Christianity and, and queer thinking, queer sociality is exactly those experiments mm. and really experiments, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't, you don't know, you don't know what's going to come of trying to do things a bit differently. Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting to try and find out. Yeah. In the book, you point out Kathy Cohn's definition of being queer and that it relates to power. With this being the definition of queer, how does this definition or what exactly does this definition say about the gospel and how we may understand the gospel? Mm, that's such a good question. You know, there's a very easy answer to that in some way, which is something like Jesus threw in his lot with the marginalized and outcast in various ways. He was part of the marginalized and outcast. It's clear from uh, his practices and some of his sayings that that's the for whom, you know, being with and for the poor is what Christianity should be about. And all of that has, has value. It's, it's a little too quick, I think, at the same time. Jesus's practices aren't always as unambiguous as we would like in these ways. You know, we've done a lot of exegetical work to sort of extract him from his environment in various ways so that we would make sure that there was a part of Christianity we could sort of hold on to, even as we maybe um, lost some of our attachments to some of the more um, life-denying aspects of it. And I guess I still believe that answer, even though it's a little too quick, right? I, mm -hmm. I still believe that what it means for, for, for the gospel is fundamentally that uh, being with and for the poor and the otherwise marginalized is, is, is it in certain ways. It's, it's what it means to live out of the abundance mm -hmm. that, that, um, that God promises. But I do, I do wonder what happens when we, um, 
are too certain that Jesus fulfills the hopes that we have invested in him. Mm-hmm. You later on in the book talk about Marcella Outhouse Reed, who I very dearly love. One of the things that you mention is that in her work, you can't talk about her work in really traditional academic ways. Uh, in fact, her work transgresses that. So this seems to be a part of queer theology. Uh, so therefore, in what ways can one theologically reflect um, about queer theology, but maybe outside of traditional academic norms? Well, the place where I've been doing most of that work for the last year and a half is the dance floor. Mm. And specifically, uh, or, or primarily at the heart, the rape. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's an answer that I'm, it's, it's one that I have thought a lot about and, and hope to write about. Um, I'm giving a paper that, that partly deals with this later this week. And I know that the paper will not uh, be taken entirely seriously by parts of the audience because mm. of that. Now, what that means is what, what it has meant that, that that's where, where, where theology has been happening for me has been walking with uh, my own and, and some of the people who surround me most, our own most difficult sort of life things into the space of uh, the dance floor and noticing how bringing those things with you to the dance floor and working through them in the body has similarities to what church promised me it would be Mm -hmm. and wasn't so i a lot of i i I tweeted about this at one point and i really do hope to write it about it eventually what what church promised me and the dance floor gave me Mm -hmm. and that's one of the places i've been doing a lot of theology recently I can imagine that sort of implicit to you saying that your theology is being done on the dance floor is that the embodiment that you experience on the dance floor is the the medium by which you're able to express your theology and explore theology. So with that said, how does the body however you want to define the body, how does the body fit into this notion of queer theology it's at the heart Mm. and and one of the you know one of the things that we always return to in the course that i teach on that subject is the difficulty of writing the body without apparently also doing to the body exactly what writing the body was supposed to avoid which is kind of making it into an inert thing about which one thinks rather than recognizing that thinking itself is a bodied activity, like all human activities. Mm -hmm. One of the things bodies do is think. And so 
living out of, uh, of, of, of a sense of, of the body, not only as a sort of house in which I happen to have taken up residence, but rather learning to pay more attention to, you know, how the body moves through space, which spaces are welcoming to which bodies, what it means to make your body movable so that others can find room also to mm. live, what it means to walk down a street with different levels of fear about what an encounter with police might mean or with uniformed mm. security guards who might follow you around if you don't look a certain way or if you're racialized in certain ways. All of that is what queer theology is supposed to be about. All of that is the body. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm, I'm curious, uh, and, and maybe this is just plain not the work of queer theology, in which case we can certainly go to the next question. But with embodiment being the heart of queer theology, what maybe advice or what like uh, what would you like to offer to people who are straight who are really wrestling with, okay, what does queer theology have to do for me? Or what does queer theology critique in me uh, with embodiment? being at the heart of queer theology because even the straight person has a body right and so I, I think there's a sense that they can somewhat in some way shape or form uh at least receive what is being offered in queer theology well one of the things that both marcella altas reed and uh who you just mentioned a, a moment ago and mark jordan have written quite a bit about is the danger of of sexual scripts of of sort of pre-written narratives about how your life is going to develop mm. And that can have to do with identity, but it can also have to do with any number of other sort of life-altering things. Mm. It could be tenure denial. It could be a cancer diagnosis. It could be the untimely loss of somebody you thought you would live with for the rest of your life. All, all kinds of forms of, of radically transformative experiences, that is the experiences where in some meaningful way, you aren't who you used to be afterwards. That, if, if, if you're not engaged with the possibility of alternate forms of life, that can come on you as the loss of a life in its totality, mm. right? It can mean that when you lose the thing around which you've built, and we will lose everything, that's the nature of human existence. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, you lose everything, at least in, in, in one sense. If you, if, you, if you haven't learned to live with loss, and to live sort of in the face of it, right? In the midst of life, we are in death. Then those, those kinds of experiences are going to catch you off guard, potentially, mm -hmm. in a way that it can, be, it can be transformative, but it can also be nothing but lost in that case, just pain. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that queer theology can help uh, straight people around is, is more imaginative inhabitations of the world. A recognition that other people have gone through losses, maybe of the same kind, maybe not, and have written new stories, maybe less scripted stories following mm. that. Maybe where there's, it's less obvious what you're going to do. And precisely that means that you start living in a new way. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in those moments. I don't want to, I don't want to romanticize suffering. I don't think suffering is romantic at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's awful. I think it's generally suffering. <laughs> But there's also no question that those kinds of experiences um, really do force you into confronting some of the hard questions in life. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And I really do think that queer theology at its best, queer writing maybe especially at its best, helps with that project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it, it sounds like, it, maybe I'm hearing this uh, wrong, but it sounds like by, so the nature of queer theology is sort of this uh, kind of digging into the particularity of what it means to be queer and theologically reflecting on being queer, uh, but in a very particular social location. And by doing so, opens you up to universality that exists. Um, just in the same way when a person who, let's say, is straight, reflects on what it means for them to be straight and theologically reflecting upon that, where they're, you know, sort of digging in and, and, and uh, exploring and investigating what it means to be particularly straight, then it opens up them up to this universality. Is that, is that my hearing somewhat? Am I somewhat getting to what you're trying to say? I, I, I wouldn't use the term universality quite. Okay. I think the thing that you're getting at is, 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 is really helpful and really nicely put. The thing that I think about, and I'm going to mangle the quotation, but it's that wonderful James Baldwin quotation that makes its rounds every, every now and again. The one about how I, I used to think I was alone in the world and my pain and suffering were unique. And then I read. Mm. And that's maybe the directionality yeah. that I'm thinking of. So, yeah. so not quite maybe because particularity has to be, has to be kept, right? Right. Um, but, but that, that there are potential and maybe unexpected affiliations, maybe unexpected resonances, absolutely. Today I have Joel, and Joel, you are a part of a quintet called the Jazz Quintet, and uh, I, I tell you what, I, I don't listen to a lot of jazz, especially a lot of modern jazz, um, but the fact that you're really good friends with my best friend, and he was showing me some of your guys' stuff before the actually the time that I saw you guys play on New Year's Eve, I was incredibly impressed. Uh, sure. I, I, I think you guys are quite great at what you do. Uh, just in, I mean, I, I, I can't articulate a lot because I'm not a huge like jazz connoisseur, but uh, sure. from what I, what I listened to, I was very impressed. So with that said, I know you all released a new album last year. Um, mm -hmm. and I also musically featured throughout this episode is JAS Quintet. JAS Quintet is a jazz group from South Dakota. You can get connected with both Lynn and JAS Quintet and their work in the links and the episode description uh, mm -hmm. of recording uh, in a, a different mode of playing than what maybe like a jazz that is being played live, right? Like there's a little different thing going on. So anyway, mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about like how your specific band goes into recording knowing that jazz is supposed to be this really improvised and spontaneous thing? Yeah, for sure. Good question. Um, well, we uh, uh, went into the studio and we've done it twice now. We we mostly go in with the, like, we're playing it live. So we take two takes of everything, just playing okay. straight through. 
Um, and the last studio we were in was in Omaha called Warehouse Studios, I think, or the Warehouse or something like that. Um, really great place. But, you know, we're all in one big room kind of sectioned off by these like fake walls with windows so we can kind of see each other's faces. <laughs> yep. And, and uh, so then there's separation still, uh, but everything is still live. Uh, there's definitely no like, Oh, I screwed this up. So I got to go in and fix it kind of stuff mm-hmm. because it's, there's still enough bleed. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely like rooms for like, if things work out, like in our two takes where, where we were at the same time. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, if everything was like timed out right, we could take a section from one song and use it in place of a section of another song, which we did, I think, on one or two tracks. Okay. So basically, we just kind of like combined two takes that we did. We liked the melody of one take and then we liked the solos of another take. But that was kind of lucky because we ended up, our drummer is, has excellent time. So he ended up being like, perfect through both so we, you know otherwise because we didn't play to a click either right oh, um geez. which is like so like if you're recording and you're tracking you definitely have to play to a cr- click um to make that work but in with jazz like you said you got to have that spontaneity it's always different uh like miles like uh like a lot of the famous stuff that miles davis recorded was done in one take wow. and even like you take like a love supreme by john coltrane and those those guys didn't even see the music until they went into the studio that time. Um, Giant Steps was that way, like the the piano player on Giant Steps, which is a famous, like really hard song that John Coltrane wrote. Mm-hmm. The recording was the first take of that song, and you can hear the piano player just kind of stumble through it. And like he, <laughs> he's famous for saying, like he handed me that, and I, we recorded it five minutes after I looked at it, and I had no idea what I was doing. So. Um, anyway, but yeah, we recorded like completely live. We wow. overdubbed like just like so. There's one part in one of the songs uh, where Jeff, our keyboard player, overdubbed like a couple more octaves on the piano and the Rhodes just to thicken up this 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 medley kind of that mm-hmm. we had in one of the songs. So, but besides that, everything was was all live and two takes for each song. So. Wow, that's impressive. How how does one, especially like a jazz band like yourself, how how do they or how do you go in writing? Like it just seems like a thing where you just kind of jam around and then, all right, well that mm-hmm. sounded kind of cool. Write that down and then, or sure. is there a different process? Like I'm, I think not only just recording seems incredibly difficult and very different than most recordings, mm-hmm. but the writing seems like it would be absolutely different. Yeah, maybe it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely different. It's, I don't know if it's more or less difficult, but, but, um, so like we come at it like basically with a form or or an open form with ideas of sections of a song. Like when I write uh, a song, like I'll definitely write the melody, I'll have chords out underneath that melody. And then let's say that whole thing is 32 bars, like that 32 bars will repeat itself um at, during the improv part too like so mm. it's just basically kind of like a a guide um and what's cool about uh really great jazz musicians is that um like the chords can be implied so there can be a lot of substitutions happening so if i play something over a certain chord like a d7 chord that doesn't exactly fit the chord but it's within the language of like jazz, like if I'm doing certain extensions on that chord, like I'm throwing in what what would call like a flat nine. Mm-hmm. So that's a chord, that's a note outside of the chord, 
Um, but in the jazz language, it's common. So if you have a good jazz musicians you're playing with, they'll hear you do that and they'll compliment that. Mm. So there's that's where it starts to like sound harder than it is because it's really just a language that we know that that you guys or most people don't speak. Right, they just right. like kind of are in awe of it. But really to us, it's just like, we're just kind of talking to each other within the confines. Like, Hey, let's yeah. talk about this. Um, and let's talk about this. You know? Yeah. So, but, but there are particular rules that you're playing by because, you know, a lot of jazz feels really free form. It feels really random and mm-hmm. there's not much rules at all, but it sounds like there's actually quite a few rules going on. Uh, but the flexibility within them makes it sound like, there's a lot of freeform going on, which I mean, there is to an yeah. extent, but there, there's probably less than what maybe the listener is actually picking up on. Yeah, for sure. And it kind of, it also depends on what style of jazz that you're mm-hmm. playing to. I mean, there's, there's some stuff on our last record that is more freeform than, than other stuff. You know, we, we kind of stuck to, uh, uh, I guess on our first record, there's more just freeness because we just did it on CD. Since we did this one on a record, we had to know the length of the songs. Because mm-hmm. um, once you go over 21 or 22 minutes aside on a record, you start to lose the quality of the sound. Um, so we definitely stuck to like, okay, I'm going to, when, when my solo comes, I'm just going to take X amount of bars within the context of, of whatever the roadmap was, um, just so that we knew we could keep, do all the songs we wanted to and put them on the record. Um, but yeah, it does, it, it, it does sound to people probably more, more free form. Um, but yeah, within the, the uh, limits of the form, you can be free. It's kind of weird. I work with a lot of students who want to learn to improvise too. And sometimes to help them improvise, you have to put a lot of rules in front of them yeah. so that they can see how to use the language. Otherwise, like they're just using gibberish, which is also a great way to learn too. Like, you know, you mm-hmm. like as a kid learns to talk, they just kind of mumble until they figure out what sounds work yeah. and how yep. to make the sounds work. So yeah. um, there's so many different ways to kind of like look at it too. And mm-hmm. it's amazing in the history of the music. Uh, like some of my idols, like were really heavy, like theory nerd people, you know, like right. they studied all their arpeggios and like really practiced that stuff hard. And some of my idols like didn't pay any attention to that and couldn't read a lick. They just played completely by ear. So it's, um, I think the, the key is to kind of try to do both, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know you all recorded and released an album last year, but is there any aspirations right now or has there been any progress in terms of writing and recording some new stuff? Well, we definitely have, uh, like we, we were trying to find a date. The problem with, with the, the JAS quintet is that like, uh, the guys are so busy and good at like all their other, like our keyboard players, the principal oboe player in the symphony. Um, and our bass player is the bass player in the symphony and they all do like 1100 other things, but we're trying to get a date together to, to record our, we've done a lot of arrangements of cover songs, like I'm trying to think of a co- couple we've done. Like I've done a night, we've done a nine inch nails one, um, the, <laughs> the, what, what tune is it? Oh, not the awakening. Uh, oh, I can't remember, but it's from downward spiral. It's super fun, but everybody's kind of brought some arrangements of like, I did an arrangement of a, of a Pearl jam tune that I really love <laughs> called release is the last track on 10 um, that we've done for many years that we, so we kind of want to record that our keyboard player, Jeff has a whole bunch of songs 
um, that we haven't even tapped into yet that that we would love to record at some point too. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nothing like concrete yet, so okay. that w- that we have in the works. Right. So. But at the very least, there, there's a lot of potential for a lot of stuff coming out. Yes, for sure. Awesome. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate the music. It, I Jazz, again, is something that's really new to me in a lot of ways. Um, and it, it's uh, it's an art form that I really wish I could appreciate more. It's something that I really am going to have to, to kind of dig into a little bit more. Uh, because sure. at least from, from the surface, I'm really fascinated by it. I'm really fascinated by the dynamics of it. I'm really fascinated by the philosophy behind jazz. Um, I think there's a lot to, to learn uh, just in life because of jazz music. So I, I yeah. would love to dive into it a little bit more. And so I'm really thankful that a band like yours is is sort of contributing to that tradition. Well, thanks. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say just anybody who's in your shoes who would like to know more, like I think the best way to experience it is live mm-hmm. first, because then you really do get the like the energy and you you start to see, oh, wait, wait a minute. Like they're they clearly did not plan this. <laughs> they clearly yeah. like they're looking at each other, like communicating in a way that you didn't, maybe some people didn't know existed. Um, that's a good way to get, get into it. And then from there, it's kind of like endless, the mm-hmm. amount of styles and stuff like that. So, well, thank you so much, Joel. It's super great to, to be able thank to connect you. with you and uh, yeah, too. thank you for sharing your music. Yeah. Hopefully make it up to Minneapolis sometime. We'll, we'll, we'll look you up. There you go. How does queer theology critique capitalism? I was really interested in that part of your book. Well, one answer is that it doesn't do nearly as much of that as I think it should. (laughs) One of the reasons I wrote the book. (laughs) You know, Christian Century did a review of the book a while back, and there's there's many things to say about that review. But one of the amazing things was that this is, you know, the heart of the argument of the book, and it's not mentioned uh, at at all in the review. And I, Mm. I wondered a lot about the sort of economics in a certain sense of that, right? Why, why engage a book where the, the central argument is that, that queer theology shouldn't be done without attention to capitalism and, and everything that capitalism has entailed um, uh, around especially race and colonization, but, but you know, a variety of other forms of extractive practices. And, and, and then you sort of, you, you just don't talk about that part because it's much harder to talk about. It's, it's not as cute and sexy as queer theology often wants to be. It's not the same kind of like, Hey, I found the polyamorous trinity. I made God queer, which again, I I get the cuteness of that. It's a flirtatious little way to do theology. Um, It's not going to sustain you. ultimately, Mm -hmm. And it's also not going to do, I think, the work that that queer theology ought to do, which is precisely thinking about um, in particular, the, the, the way that capitalism is, is an organizing of exchange systems, 
that um, have you know effects that are just deeply destructive, both in the in the forms of exchange and extraction that it involves, but also in in the very way that human lives are constructed and oriented. And I think theology in general has not done a very good job of thinking about money. It's too often mm. being, oh, consumerism is bad. You should buy fewer things. And you should understand that God is the only one who actually fulfills your desires. Any of those things may be true, but they don't really reckon with the mechanics, the sort of in infrastructure, institutionality, the means by which capitalism sustains itself. And I think both theology and queer theology ought to, if they're going to be worth doing at all, be wrestling absolutely centrally with those mm. kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and in a way that's much more, um, much more negative about the possibilities of living well in a world ordered this way than both theology and queer theology tend to be. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to see for the future of queer theology? Well, you know, at the start of the semester when I'm teaching courses like this, I tell my students, you're the future of queer theology. Please do wonderful <laughs> projects so that it will be amazing, right? Not to put any pressure on them or anything like that. I mean, I would like to see it growing in, in some of the directions that I outline in the book. Thinking, you know, uh, at least uh, a couple of, of things would be thinking much harder about doctrine and questions of doctrine. Uh, it would be more theoretical sophistication than has often been the case, at least in Christian engagements with questions of sexuality. I often get, you know, a couple of lines about Judith Butler and something gender is performance in there. And, and mm -hmm. that's pretty much the depth with which people have thought about, you know, questions of gender and sexuality. So I'd like to see much more deepening engagement with a variety of, of, of uh, theoretical resources. But, but also, I, I don't know that queer theology needs to exist as such, right? Mm -hmm. It needs to exist maybe as long as the world is organized in a certain way, where this becomes one of the ways in which people are um, put at deep risk because of bodily practices that are, you know, uh, absolutely, uh, I, was, I was about to say innocent, but I don't really believe that anything is that. So <laughs> um, unimpeachable bodily practices, shall we say. <laughs> Um, and, and, and so as long as the world is like that, maybe queer theology has a place. Um, I think we should be thinking harder about, um, you know, questions of performance, about, uh, activist questions, about, uh, you know, what sorts of forms, if it's going to be Christian queer theology, what sorts of forms life together can and should take, you know, very much as you're saying beyond and, and outside church or what mm -hmm. church would become if it was going to be a place where you could live like this. Um, but I, I sort of also want the world in which the need for it isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have this sense of this, this tension that exists within you. Or in, in one sense, you, you really love it and it, it matters to you a lot because it does really matter now. But also you want to live in a world where actually it won't matter and it's not needed. Sort of live in that tension and, and totally yeah. up. Yeah, in my in my first book, I write about what it would be like to be a church that didn't try to preserve itself. Mm, mm -hmm. I was interested in that, and and I use some some resources from queer thinking to sort of develop that as a model. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of Christians decided this is the hill we die on, and because a lot of Christians decided this is the hill we die on, decided this is what we split denominations over, this is what we split families over. The rest of us have had to fight that battle. Right. I don't believe it's a battle we should have had to fight. I think it was a deep, deep mistake that mainline Christianity made the decisions that it did in that regard. I, I think it's absolutely horrible. But, 
you know, a lot of Christians did make that decision and that, that created a world in which we have had to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's, that's partly in relation to the apologetic side of things, of course, yeah. mm -hmm. the, the other side is, is broader than that and, you know, harder. Mm -hmm. The tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring and liberating theologies. It might be very obvious, but how is queer theology inspiring and liberating theological work? Well, it's it's partly it's you know one of its antecedents. One, it's it's a descendant of liberation theology, right? Mm -hmm. it's an easy descendant of liberation theology because you know one of Marcella Altas Reed's points was that the poor are often indecent by other Christian standards, right? Mm. The poor aren't your sort of imagined good, upstanding, simple poor. Right. They are as complex as anyone else, and you know queer theology should should also be about kind of giving freedom to, to, to imagine out of that. Um, I also think it sets people free from a certain kind of, you know, almost like false reverence for a certain type of theological construction. Mm. If you approach it right, it, it can help you to recognize that it's this world that God loves, the one in which you live, not some imagined world that could be organized very easily according to the categories that we use to, to order it. It's this world, this complicated, messy world, and no other that is the world that God loves in Christian thinking. And it's engaging with that reality that should motivate any theology worth doing, which will then be liberating mm -hmm. and like, inspiring. That's great. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? The easiest way is generally email um, at my work address, lynn.constad at yale.edu, or Twitter. Uh, my handle is at penamiriel. Uh, it is a somewhat embarrassing handle that I once chose because I memorized a Tolkien poem in Elvish in my head. <laughs> Sounds a little nerdy. So maybe just a tiny bit, um, but those would be the easiest places to reach me. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I have really appreciated your work. Um, I, I Again, I'm a huge fan of Marcel Husreid and sort of to, to read uh, to read this book in light of knowing how much influence that she's had on you. It's just so great. And uh, I, I really love the idea of moving beyond uh, doing queer theology beyond just apologetics. You know, there's so much and it's really good. It's really good literature and it's really good work. Uh, but in a, in a way, it's sort of, is there anything beyond, beyond just being apologetic, right? And so I really appreciated that aspect to your work as well. And, and, that's just one facet that I really appreciated. All of the things in the book are really wonderful. So thank you so much for your work and uh, for sharing a little bit more about it. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed it. If you'd like to connect with both Lynn and Jazz Quintet and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.